Good morning, Village Church. Hey, if I don't know you, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. And um, I just got to say, doesn't this just bring back memories? Yeah? You're part of the Village Church. Like, I loved the quarantine season for the life of our church. For many of you as, as just individuals, as families, it was a sweet season in some ways. And for us as a church family, it certainly was. And, you know, we've got a leaky baptismal, okay? So so we're meeting outside, but but maybe also an excuse just to get outside again and to remind ourselves a little bit of, of some things we did together as a church family in that season. You can smell the food. We're going to enjoy a meal, and we're going to celebrate baptisms, which I know everyone is looking forward to. Um, but we're still going to open up God's Word and spend a little time here before we spend a little time at the tub, okay? We are continuing a series we're calling Church Alive, and we're here in Acts 17. And what we're talking about this morning is this idea of the church being alive through the contextualization of the gospel. The church be, being alive in any place and in any culture through the contextualization of the gospel. And, you know, I was thinking this week about this as I watched so many things going on around the world, specifically in the Ukraine. I've never been to the Ukraine. I know lots of people that have. The seminary that I, I went to has a satellite campus there. Many of you have been to the Ukraine. Many of you have known that the church there has literally exploded. And so many of you have posted on Instagram, you know, videos and, and photos of the church singing and relying on Jesus, being on their knees, tending to the needs of others. The Christian community in Ukraine is robust. And, and some of you understand the context in which that happened, coming out of a, a communist government system where they oppressed people who believe the things that we believe. And now here it is, a, a part of that country, now its own autonomous country, having freedom now of religion to seek the God of the Bible. It's amazing what's happening there. Maybe like you, we, we pause this morning, we think for them, we've been praying for them. But they're a great example of what happens when the church becomes alive, when the gospel is contextualized in a particular place for a particular people in a particular season. And that's true throughout all of Christian history. Um, some of you know my story. Maybe many of you don't. I was an anthropology or I was a pre-med major in, in college. I wanted to be a doctor. Um, if you've ever seen me write, you know that maybe I should have been, right? So that's, that's, that's what happened. That's the way it started. But God called me out of that into, into this, and, and the idea was sort of doctoring the soul instead of the body. That's the short story. But, but after that transition, I became an anthropology major because I enjoyed those classes. And I did the whole, like, anthropology honor society thing. Like, I dove deep because anthropology is all about understanding why people think the way they do, why they believe the things they believe, why they do the things that they do. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to use that as a means for understanding how we could share the gospel with them. Now listen, I still thought I would travel the world and do Doctors Without Borders and stuff like that and participate in those kinds of things. And I've been a couple trips like that. But what I realized is this is a reality in any culture, in any place you find yourself. I was an anthropology major and a sociology minor. So I understood how you would look at church and culture, I think, as a Christian. And I'm, I'm still learning I made a transition over to pastoral ministry, but, but when I did, I, I still believe this, that every Christian in every city is a missionary. Do you believe that? I mean, one of, my, one of my lessons from all that work in anthropology as a Christian was that every Christian in every city is a missionary. Matter of fact, can we just say that together with, with, some, with some faith and belief this morning? Can you say that with me? Every Christian in every city is what? Is a missionary. Now, you just said it. 
It's you too, right? That's you and that's me. That's all of us. Luke made that clear in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8 when he says, Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what does he say? You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of earth, you're all going to be missionaries to the cities I surround you. Jerusalem, the place you know very well. All of Judea and Samaria, a place you kind of know. And to the ends of the earth, a place that you know nothing about. See, being a missionary changes the way you see things. Question this morning for you might be, how, how do you see the place that you live? How do you see the place that we live? As I thought about this a few years back, I thought, some of us see this place like a tourist. We come in, and if you see this place like a tourist, you have a very consumeristic kind of bent. You just want to come and just sort of get something good and then leave. Maybe you've all had people that have come to stay with you because you live in Orange County, and they want to get out of the bad weather and into the promised land, right? And one of the first places they always want to go is to Hollywood. Isn't that crazy? They always want to drive to Hollywood. One of the, ugh, Why? So like, go, go down to Table Rock in Laguna. Can I get an amen, right, or something like that? See somewhere more beautiful. But when people come as tourists, they just have a consumeristic kind of lens. They just want to come and take from what's here. You might have a lens. You might see the city, and you might be viewing it like a temporary resident. And I want to say, if you're, if you're looking at this place as a temporary resident, you're having an opportunistic kind of view on this place. It's not consumeristic, it's opportunistic. You just want to see what you can get out of this place because you know you're moving on. You know you're working at the headquarters of the company so they can send you somewhere else. You know you're getting experience at this company so you can build your resume and you can go somewhere else. It's a very opportunistic way of viewing the place that you live. You might be saying, well, that's not how I see it. I'm a local. I'm staying. I'm tried and true. I'm not going anywhere. Boise's dead to me. You know, Franklin, dead to me. Austin, dead to me. Like, I'm here. I'm grounded. I'm never leaving. I'm a local. And if you're a local and you're like, no, I'm never leaving this place, you could either be on one hand idealistic, thinking this place is better than it is, or fatalistic, talking about, you know, taxes and prices and small yard and all those sorts of things, right? That How about we view this place like missionaries? Tourists have a consumeristic lens, see this place through a consumeristic lens, Temporary residents see this place through an opportunistic lens. Locals, we can see this place either with an idealistic or a fatalistic kind of lens, but missionaries see any place they live, listen to me, with an evangelistic kind of lens. We are to see the place that we live as evangelists because that's what a missionary does. Being a missionary changes the way you see everything. Paul was a missionary, and it changed the way he saw every town that he found himself in. This morning, I'm going to give you three questions that a, a Christian missionary would ask, a Christian anthropological missionary would ask, a Christian who has a sociological kind of view about the city that they live in, questions that they would ask. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to, I'm going to head these things with three headings, not from a, a famous anthropologist, but from a famous theologian, John Stott, because I just can't, I can't title these sections better than he's done it. I'm going to ask you three questions. The first one is this, what do you see? What do you see? What did Paul see when he was in Athens? Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
Now, the idol that he saw first was the, was the idol Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom and skill and war. You could see her statue, it was said, from 40 miles away. It's like being here in Orange County and being on top of one of the WeWork buildings and looking out and seeing downtown, day on a, downtown L.A. on a clear day, maybe after it's rained, and there's that statue of Athena. You could see it from 40 miles away. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, Artemis, protector of the pregnant women, Demeter, god of agriculture, Dionysus, the god everyone loved, wine and, and joy in theater, right? Everyone loves him. Goddess Hera, Hermes, Hestes, Zeus was there. By the time of Nero, it was said that there were, listen, 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. Think about that. 30,000. Petronius said it this way. It was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. They were everywhere. These idols were everywhere. And I can't help but wonder if when Paul walked in and saw this, that he thought about Psalm 135 in his mind, because he knew the Bible. And Psalm 135 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who put their trust in them. I mean, Paul saw these statues, but he saw more than the statues. He saw what was going on in the marketplace of his day. Think the Irvine Spectrum, think the Civic Center, but more, think the Irvine Spectrum, a place where you could go to get whatever you want, to see whatever you're looking for, to discern where all the people from all the places around the neighborhoods where we live, where they all come to congregate, and when what happens when they do. Media Center, Financial Center, Entertainment Center, Art Center, Philosophical Center, Political Center, this, this is where Paul was. And he saw, he observed, the word literally means he discerned, which means he saw beneath the surface of what was there. Have you ever seen beneath the surface when you walk around the Irvine Spectrum? It was one day, a few years back when I was there, I forget even what I was doing. And I was with the family and I just sat on a bench, maybe they were in one of the stores I didn't want to be in, and I sat on a bench with a, a coffee and a croissant. That's what I like to do when I shop, coffee and croissant. And... And I just watched people. And have you ever just people watched? Just to see what people are doing. And you can discern what they value and maybe what their attitudes are like. You can learn something about them just by watching. And it's just people watching and just discerning. There's something beneath the surface here. And what Paul saw when he was in the marketplace was he saw what was beneath the surface. And he saw that all of these things were, were, were idolatrous. That's what was beneath the surface, that these people were worshiping other things and other so-called gods. Paul sees the smallness, is what he saw, of all the things that people were living for, all of these idols, all the things that they exchanged their time and their money and their devotion to and for, all these things that they worship, and Paul saw the smallness of what they were living for. He saw underneath it all. What do you see? Do you see the underlying idolatry that's, that's, that's present in the lives of so many people in Orange County? Do you see the idolatry that could be underlying and present in your own life? It's not only important to ask what do you see. It's really easy to see these things. When you just take just a little bit of time to sit and watch, you can see. Just a little bit of margin will give you eyes to see. 
The second question is, what do you feel? Like, what, do you, what, do you, what does that do to you? What do you feel about what you see? How did Paul feel when he saw these things in Athens? Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoke means to irritate or to stimulate, to, to arouse to anger. I believe Paul felt what God himself feels when he sees idolatry. It's two things, and they're kind of in attention. It's anger and affection. In my mind, that's how, those are the two words that I'm, I'm using this morning. God is angry when he sees people committing idolatry and devoting themselves to people and to things that are just too small, that they were never intended to be devoted to. It upsets God in a righteous anger kind of way. And, but at the same time, God has compassion and affection for people. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is angry. This word literally means a, a similar, it's, it's a similar word in, in the Greek language as, as was the Old Testament language when we see things in like in Deuteronomy chapter 4 where it says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he has made with you and make carved images and form them, formed of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. In the Old Testament, God would say, don't commit idolatry. I'm jealous for you, meaning I'm zealous for you. I want more for you than that. I want more for you than you devoting your life to something so small and trite and fake, something that can never give you what you're looking for. Why did Paul feel this way? I think it's because he saw the emptiness in all of it. He saw the emptiness in all they were trying to do to appease their gods, to appease their idols. And many of you have lived that way before you became Christians. And some of you maybe are joining us this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And in the back of your mind, you can say, yeah, I live my life that way sometimes. I think in the back of my mind, I'm trying to do all these good things just to appease God. That's what they were doing. They were living their lives to try to appease all these gods. And Paul felt angry about that, righteously angry. And Paul felt compassion how do you feel how do you feel when you see the reality that that so many people live their lives devoted to idols things that can never deliver does it does it stir up righteous anger in you does it does it stir up compassion for the people that you know and love it's not just what we see and what we feel but the last question is the most important question and that question is what will we do what will we do? What will we do with what we see and the way that that makes us feel? If we see the idolatry and, we, and, and, and it makes us righteously angry and it, and it wells up compassion in our hearts for the people that are living their lives for such small things, what will we do? You know what the anthropologist answer is? Because I spent a lot of time in anthropology. The anthropologist answer is nothing. You do nothing. Do not disturb another person's culture. Do, do not lay your values over their values. Help them to, to have the best culture they could possibly have in their place. Matter of fact, so many of my anthropology colleagues, when they knew I was a Christian, it was kind of off-putting because they didn't like Christian missionaries who would go and try to introduce truths to people in other parts of the world that weren't part of their current culture. And anthropologist answers, do nothing. Leave them alone. Help them to be as fruitful as they can in their own culture. And the way that that would translate here is do nothing. Just leave the people alone if they want to be idolaters let them if they want to live their life for things too small just let them it's their life 
just try to help them be as happy as they can while they commit themselves to things that will ultimately never fulfill them. But that's not what Christians do, right? That's not what Paul did. Verse 17 says, so, so what? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And if, if you're not yet a Christian and you're joining us this morning, maybe you're hearing this, and I just want you to know, this is why Christians try to tell you what they believe. Not because they're self-righteous, although maybe you've met a self-righteous Christian, and I'm sorry, I've been one before. Maybe your Christian relative or your Christian neighbor or your Christian friend is trying to share something with you about Jesus because they do see the underlying problem. They have it themselves or they've had it themselves of devoting your life to, to things that are too small. And, and they love you. They have compassion. They see that because they know what's been true in their own life. This is what's going on with Paul. Paul then goes and reasons with these people, the Jews who he has affinity with, devout persons, but also people in the marketplace, in the everyday ordinary things of life. Paul goes, as is his practice, into the synagogue, and he talks to people that, that have some knowledge of the God of the Bible. But then it says he's just in the marketplace with just whoever's there, whoever's sitting next to you at that table at Starbucks, you know, whoever's waiting in line with you at the store. You know, whoever seems to be watching their kid next to your kid on the sports field. Like, wherever it is, Paul's in the marketplace of the daily things of life, and he's reasoning with people like a missionary. And what is he doing? I think one thing, he's trying to give them as large a view of God as he possibly can. He's trying to give them as large of a view of God as he possibly can. Verse 17 or verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. The Stoics believed that the meaning of life was, was just to be a good, rational person. Be a virtuous, rational person. Okay, that's the Cliff Notes version. And the Epicureans, the meaning of life is, is to live for pleasure. So Stoics think conservative, think moralist. Epicureans think liberal, think relativist, think naturalist. So as Paul is reasoning with both of these kinds of people, what do we think that the initial reaction is going to be? Look at verse 18. And some says, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This word babbler is, is an insult for sure. It literally is translated seed picker. This guy's a seed picker. The idea here is that it's someone who picks the ideas, picks from ideas of others because they have no genuine ideas themselves. They pick from the ideas of others. They have no original ideas on their own. But Paul continues to reason with them. Paul continues to preach. Paul continues in a Socratic dialogue. Why does he do this? Because Paul was confident that the truth of the gospel is the most original thing there's ever been. And that the truth of the gospel could stand up to any idea, any ideal, any cultural norm. That the truth of the gospel could stand up to anything. The gospel has what it takes to stand up to any culturally constructed idea or ideal, idol or ideology. And listen to me, and win. And win. Not win in a boastful way, but win in an actual way. Like the gospel has the ability to triumph over any other kind of thought or idea or construction or idol. The good news for Paul was that not everyone was so dismissive of him. And they won't be of you either. Do you believe that? Look at verse 19. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're present, presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all Athenians and the foreigners and all who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They always wanted to hear something new. Sound familiar? What Paul had was a thing that was the one old thing that would always be the, the regular thing, the old thing, would always be the one thing. But it was a new idea to them. You know, in our culture, that our culture is the same way, always looking for the newest thing, the newest trend, the newest person, the, the newest fad, the newest this, the newest opportunity, the newest thought, you know, the newest way of seeing things. We live in a post-Christian culture, though, now, and so sometimes the, the oldest thing is the newest thing. You have opportunities to share the gospel with people in this context who literally may never have heard it before. This is what Paul's doing. So what did Paul do with this opportunity? Again, he painted as big a picture of God as he possibly could. We should do the same. Paul paints these six big ideas about God. Look at them quickly with me here this morning. The first one is this. There's only one God, and he created everything. And if you found yourself wandering in with a guest or a family member or a friend or a neighbor or just like happened to come for the first time, the first thing we want to tell you this morning is there's only one God and he created everything. There's not 30,000 of them. There's not even two. There's just one. The Bible says there's only one God and there's one mediator between God and man and that's the man Christ Jesus. Paul starts here. There's one God who created everything. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth He does not live in temples made by man. And this is the first place that Paul starts. This is the first place that we likely all start because this is the first place that everyone sees the reality that that God could be, and we believe as Christians, God is real. When you look around, you know, when you're outside, when you stare across the Grand Canyon, when you go to the beach after church and you sit on the stand and and you see across the horizon, when you make your way through a trail in Yosemite, when you drive across the country and just see fields and mountains, you know, when, when you get in those places, you understand this reality. And this was a much more rational idea than the most rational stoic idea that there must be a really good scientific explanation for creation. You know what the great scientific explanation of our day is? It happened by chance. Haven't we learned over the last year science is kind of finicky? It all happened by chance. That's the most rational idea that our culture could come up with. And it's much more realistic idea than the Epicurean idea that knowledge acknowledges God, that he could be there, but refuses to be accountable to them because God hasn't done away with the evil in the world. This is where the Epicureans got their justification for living the way they wanted to live. They said, hey, if God is there and he could stop all this evil or he could stop all this suffering, but he, but he, but he doesn't, then, like, I don't even want to know him, so I'm just going to live however I want, I want to live. Second big idea about God, there's only one God, and he is dependent on nothing. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If God created everything, that he's dependent on nothing. There is a God who is so big that he needs no virtue. He's perfect and he's holy. There's a God that's so big that he needs no pleasure. Everything that he does by the authority of his will, 
brings him divine and perfect pleasure. Idea three, there is only one God and he is sovereign over everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. If God created everything and if he's dependent on nothing, he's also sovereign over everything. Which is a much bigger idea than the, idea, the Epicurean idea that our lives are under our own control. We can just do and live how we want. Much bigger than the Stoic idea that our rational thinking can help us control our destiny. If we just get all our ducks in a row, then it'll all line up the way that we want it to. No, no, that's a small idea. This is a big idea. Big idea number four about God. There's only one God, and he is near to everyone. Verse 27 to 28. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That he's actually not far from each one of us. Four. Quotes two Athenians or two Greeks. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Even there, there's one God who created everything and who's dependent on nothing and who controls everything or sovereign over everything. Listen to me, he's still not far from us. Like people who have a deistic kind of viewpoint on God say, yeah, God created everything and God's over everything. God's in need of nothing, but he's way out there, and there's no way that he could know me or I could know him. This is a much bigger idea, that there is a God who is above us and beyond us and outside of us, but he's also, he's also near to us. This is what the Bible teaches. Big idea number five, there is one God, and we are his image bearers. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. This kind of God that created everything, dependent on nothing, sovereign over everything, still close to us, has created us in his image and likeness with dignity and value and worth. We are to bear, or what means, bear means to uphold. We are to uphold the image of God as his creation. But we have not done that, which brings us to the sixth big idea is there is one God, and he is the judge of everyone. We can't just live like the Epicureans, just however we want to live. I mean, this is a really prominent thought in Orange County, that we just live for pleasure and live however we want to live, and there's, we're accountable to, in a sense, no one but ourselves. Or this idea that we can just think rationally, and we can just plan our life out and sequence everything together, and we, we got it, we, we got it handled. And, and, and we're accountable just to ourselves to make sure that that reality happens. The Bible says, no, 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 we're all image bearers of God. The God who created everything, is over everything, is sovereign over it all, who's still present and near, created you as an image bearer to bear up his image, represent him in some way. All of us fail to do that because of sin. And Paul says there's one God, he's the judge of everyone. Look at 30 and 31. The time of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent, to turn, to change. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And I think whether we're Christian or if you're not yet a Christian this morning, you probably know who Paul is talking about. How 
how can we expect our culture to, to respond to these kinds of ideas after a little bit more explanation about how big God is and how sovereign he is, yet how present he is? How he created us in his image and likeness. How, how would we expect a, a culture to respond to these things after they're explained a bit more? Look at verses 32 to 34 as we end our time together this morning. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you on this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Ariochvite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Three responses, mocking, engaging, and believing. And this is the reality for us, I believe, as well. Like, as, as we come into this place, into this culture, and we see it as missionaries, and we see the things and the idols, and we see what's underneath it all, as, as, as that stirs up a righteous anger in us, and yet a compassion on people who live their lives that way, because we understand, and such were some of you, the Bible says. And as we go and we reason with the people that we know and love, or with anyone that we just come across in the marketplace, as God divinely sets up and orchestrates those kind of divine appointments as we call them. And as we reason and share these things sort of more succinctly, or completely rather, some people will still mock. It is what it is. Some people will engage. Maybe you have friends and family like that. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're just kind of engaging right now and you're engaging these ideas. And you know what? Some people will believe. And they'll believe and they'll come to faith and they'll be baptized and they'll commit their lives to Jesus, and they'll live their entire lives from that point forward following him in a totally different way. At the end of the day, sometimes commentators debate what's going on in, in Athens, and we don't have time for all that this morning, but I just kind of asked myself the question, well, why does Paul do what he does in Athens? Like, some commentators say he approaches things in Athens differently than he does everywhere else. Why does he do what he does in Athens? And you know the simple answer this week that dawned on me again? Is that Paul does what he does in Athens because Jesus did what he did in Jerusalem. That's why. Jesus came and saw something. In the first part of this book that Luke writes, Luke and Acts, in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That was Jesus' city at the time. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Paul does what he does because Jesus did what he did. Jesus saw a city, a people who were living under things that were far too small. Religion is too small. Like living for pleasure, too small. Jesus saw this, and he saw people that rejected the prophets, including himself, that were trying to tell them what you're living for is too small. But Jesus didn't just see something. Jesus felt something. A few chapters later in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, Jesus says, and it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace? 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. When Jesus saw these realities, Jesus wept over these realities. Jesus was, was righteously angry about these things. Jesus had compassion on the people of Jerusalem. He wept, he cried over them. When was the last time we might have had a good cry over the people that we know that, that are living under these things? Jesus did. But Jesus didn't just see something and feel something. Jesus did something. And at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 23, verse 34, toward the end, it says, And Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life that, that no Stoic could ever live. You could never live a virtuous life that was more virtuous than the life of Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life, the Bible teaches, in perfect alignment with God and his will at every step, in every decision, through every moment. Jesus denied himself what would have been earthly pleasure because it was not pleasure to him. He did not live in any way, shape, or form with an Epicurean kind of mindset. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life on our behalf. Jesus died, not only lived the life we, should ne- we, we could never live, Jesus died the death we should have died. If you're not yet a Christian, this is what Christians believe. That he not only lived the life we could never live, he died the death that we should have died. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He took it upon himself. For all the times we had that kind of Epicurean mindset that just said, whatever God, I'm going for pleasure. And also all the times we said, God, we know you're there. I'm going to earn my way back to you. You know, all the, all the Stoic and all the Epicurean moments, all the religious and all the rebellious moments, like Jesus took all of our sin on himself on the cross. He lived a life we could never live. He died the death we, sh- we, we should have died. And then he rose to give us a life we could never have otherwise. And why do they mention the resurrection a couple times in this passage? Because everything hinges on it. And through the resurrection, Jesus proved who he was. And he conquered sin and hell and death. And rose to life again to, to, to prove to us and that, that God is alive. And he's active and he's at work. And when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him, we can come alive spiritually as well. When we believe Jesus Christ is the son of God who's come to save us from our sin. That God was above us and beyond us and outside of us. He came to us. And he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Christians believe. And this is what the two students, kids who are getting baptized this morning believe. Any kid believes this. Any adult who believes in Jesus believes these things. And as Ty... And as Ava go under the water this morning, you're going to see them go under and they're going to come back up. And it's going to be a picture to all of us of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about these things now. We're going to see them now as we respond in worship and as we see the baptisms. If you're new with us at the Village Church, we always have good news. And I think the good news this morning is something like this, that, that we can see, feel, and act like Jesus because we have been changed by Jesus. Amen? And we have been changed by Jesus. By God's grace, we have seen these things. By God's grace, we've responded to these realities. We've been changed from the inside out. And now we get to look at the world around us with a different set of lenses. We get to see the world. We get to see our city the way Jesus would see it. We get to feel the things that, that he would feel about the people around us. 
and we get the opportunity to join him and to do the things that he has done. We're going to have baptisms uh, in a few minutes where the kids are going to come down, maybe in just a minute, I guess, and, and uh, they're going to walk in and get ready. Our baptism uh, participants are going to change. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to run into the phone booth, and I'll come back in some swim trunks. We'll get in the tub together, and we're going to share some things publicly. Um, you're going to hear some public sharing that's going to be audible to everyone. And there'll also be some private sharing with parents and their students or their children in the tub. And that'll be beautiful. We're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to get ready for that. You're going to hear the testimonies. We're going to witness the baptisms. The church is alive because of the new life that we have in Christ. And we're going to see an example of that this morning. I can't wait. Would you sing with us? Would you prepare for baptism? It's going to be a good rest of our morning.
together, I cast my mind. I cast my mind to Calvary with Jesus We're going to get uh, the tub ready, and as we do, we've got a couple of candidates this morning. Look at that. Uh, we're going to start with Ty, because Ty, I just think that if we don't start with you, you might go crazy. This kid is awesome. Can someone say amen to that? And... Uh, Curtis and Maggie are going to come forward as well. Maggie's going to read some scripture and share a few things with us. Um, so I go to I, I go to the Hendricks house and I, I I sit down like the high top bar in their kitchen and I sit on a stool and and I'm there to talk with Ty about baptism and he kind of 
kind of like puts his arm on the stool, you know, on the counter, kind of leans in. It's like something like, hey, let's let's talk baptism, you know? And we did. And Ty's been waiting to get baptized. He's really excited to be baptized. Um, Ty, maybe we'll let you start, and then we'll have your mom come up and read some scriptures. That sound good to you? All right. Ty, when we were talking, we were talking about um, when you when you believe you became a Christian and how you came to faith and. Um, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that, all right? I'm going to hold the mic and you can talk. Sound good? Yeah, we want, to, we, we want, you, all, we want you to tell us all when, when you became a Christian, what that was like for you. sitting on the couch and talking and then I we were talking about the gospel and then I said I wanted to become a Christian and I think that was it. Yeah I think it was it. Um, you know I don't know if I've met um, someone your age who's ever such great questions about the truth of the gospel and I'm excited about that. I believe the things that you understand and you believe are things you actually understand, you believe, and Ty, it's, it's really evident in your life and your excitement to be baptized, which is the second question, which is why do you want to be baptized here this morning? I want to get baptized this morning because I want to show everyone here about the Lord and to show that I have been baptized, not just I, not, not just here, just getting, getting baptized into water, but in the Holy Spirit. Go. I told you he understands. Yeah, you can read a verse. I would like to read for you today Romans 10 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe your heart in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Dad and I are so proud of you, and we picked two scriptures we wanted to share to encourage you. The first one is 1 Timothy 4.12, and it says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. God has shown us he can use young people to do great things and set a good example to the rest of us through you. This is evident through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The second scripture we wanted to share is Galatians 5, to 25, which is the fruit of the Spirit. For those of you here who know Ty and are blessed to know him, um, you can see these fruits in his life as well. Um, the verse says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against all, against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Ty, it has been a joy to see you keep in step with the Spirit and grow in your faith the last two years. We know that God will continue to use you to set an example to others. Your dad and I love you so much and thank the Lord for letting us be your parents and for most of all for saving you. We love you, buddy. 
this morning, Ava Reed's going to be baptized as well. I want to invite Ava. Yeah, go Ava. There's your brother. Many of you know the Reese, Paul and Caitlin, and Tommy Maroon, our youth director, will be in the tub here this morning as well. Ava, we want to give you an opportunity to, to share a little bit about how you came to know Jesus and why it is that you want to be baptized this morning. Um, I want to get baptized today because I want to let the church know um, that I have Jesus in my heart, um, and I made that decision about five years ago when I was eight. Um, <laughs> yes, um, and um, when I was um, Bob assured Gryffindor, and he asked us who he um, um, who he was like who he resembled, I guess. Yeah, um, and we said um, Gryffindor. He did the same for Red Bull Racing, um, which is not okay. Um, <laughs> And then he did one for Jesus. I was like, you know what? I can use that analogy and say that I want to wear the I Heart Jesus shirt. Ava, um, for everyone who knows you at our church, knows that um, they've seen these things to you, and that couldn't be any more evident in your life. Um, you're uh, a great young lady who um, obviously loves Jesus and wants to follow him. And um, if you're new to the Village Church, um, someday your children will learn about Bob. And um, Bob will help your children. Bob will help your children learn about Jesus, which is the most important thing. And um, and I hope what you get is that we have pastors in the life of our church that are involved in the lives of the people in our church. And Pastor Josh loves you, Ava. I know. And um, and so do your folks. And they have your whole life. And I know they want to share a few things with you here privately. And then um, Tom and your dad are going to baptize you. Okay. <laughs> 